Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. You and I, my friend, have a pretty long history of going to fan conventions together, right? Mostly Wizard World and C2E2 here in Chicago. In fact, that last one, C2E2, which is the comic, the Chicago Comic Entertainment Expo, was the last one that we went to, and it was in February of 2020, right before the entire you know, country slash planet shut down. And that had to be one of the last events like this of its kind that like anybody went to, right? Yes. We we were even feeling a little bit nervous. We're like, whoa, there is this pandemic brewing and here we are packed into this giant room with thousands of people. Yes. I remember it feeling kind of weird given everything we were seeing on the news. I also remember that I uh, had maybe one too many overpriced convention hall Bud Lights that day and almost got into a fight with a guy (laughs) do you remember this there was a booth we were looking at that was selling really cool replica swords from different like shows and movies and cartoons and i saw she-ra's sword Mm. you know from like he-man and she-ra and i couldn't remember what it was called i couldn't remember the name of it and i was like to you i said man he-Man's sword is the sword of power, but I don't remember what her sword is called. And some guy, some random guy next to me was like, it's the sword of power. And I was like, well, <laughs> sir, man that nobody asked. Uh, I was like, actually, that's He-Man's sword. And he laughed. He literally laughed and like scoffed at me and was like, so is hers. And I was like, oh, really? Is it? And you were like, okay, Tiger, let's, uh, <laughs> let's go. Hey, look at those Star Wars toys over there. Let's go look at those. And you and you dragged me away. It's the sword of protection, by the way. Thank you very much if you're out there listening. Random guy that, that again, nobody asked. There's nothing worse than being sanctimonious and wrong. So we love these shows. We love Comic-Con kind of stuff and conventions. But our favorite thing by far, like this to go to, is always the Midwest Gaming Classic in Milwaukee. Not just because we love games so much, but because it's such a a hands-on experience. You get to actually play just about everything there. And there was always a lot there to play. It's so true. And to me, getting to actually play the games is such a fundamentally different concept than a traditional conference, right? It's closer to a gaming festival, like a food fest, where you get to actually try different types of foods than a convention in the strictest sense. So this is a show that's been going on for 20 years now, and we discovered it about... I don't know, five, six years ago. Back then it was in a hotel, which gave it this really cool, intimate kind of feel. The show kind of took over the first couple floors of this hotel and it felt just so dense. There was just so much stuff everywhere. Uh, You walk by a a room, hotel room, and then you realize, oh, there's like stuff to like see and go do and play in that room. And it was really cool, really different. But the last year it was there at the hotel, the old venue, you could tell that the show had outgrown it because it had gone from intimate to just feeling kind of packed. So while being at the the Wisconsin Center, which is the big convention center in Milwaukee, gives the show a very different, less intimate vibe, it's actually really nice to be able to actually easily walk around and look at stuff and play stuff, especially this year, right? Especially now when the last thing anybody wants is to be packed in anywhere with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. The last few years we've gone to MGC, we've seen some really great speakers and panels. We've watched live recordings of Retronauts, 
which is probably the the longest running retro gaming podcast out there. At least it's been around for at least 15 years or so. And the last time we were there, we saw Howard Phillips speak, which was so great. I mean, he was he was an important figure from our childhoods. Absolutely. And as a quick aside, Howard Phillips was an early employee of and ultimately a big spokesman for Nintendo of America back in the 80s. He created our beloved Nintendo Fun Club News, which went on to become our even more beloved Nintendo Power magazine. Kotaku gaming website called Howard Phillips, quote, one of the company's most high profile and best loved employees, his trademark red hair and bow tie, making him as much a mascot of Nintendo's early success as any plumber or kid in a green tunic, unquote. He talked about his early days at Nintendo of America, stories about like working in the warehouse, playing new stuff as it came in from Nintendo of Japan. Everyone in the room was just wrapped listening to him speak. It was so great. And I almost... Like, I wanted to ask for, like, a photograph with him when it was all over, but he was mobbed as soon as he left the room. We were having so much fun just playing stuff this year, though, that we we didn't really do anything else. We didn't really see much else. I did, before you arrived, I checked out a wrestling show. They had, they had live pro wrestling. They had a full ring set up and everything, and as you know, I love me some, some wrestling. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And we did watch a really cool band for a while yes and in a lot of ways it was the perfect encapsulation of the entire event a really good band playing classic video game tunes with sort of a random guy playing metroid in front of the stage with his back to the audience so you could see his screen but it was kind of a small maybe it was like a crt television i don't know the whole thing was a little strange it was all probably part of the show but it was just such a striking image and it didn't seem related at the moment although we just started cracking up so i'm not exactly sure we didn't stay that long we will post the photo on our instagram page so check us out and please follow us at mcquade arcade Anyways, it turns out that the band playing was called Mechanical Life Vane, and they were really good. Almost a jazzy style. They had a saxophone. It was really a neat take on some of these classic tunes. We'll also put a link to their page in the notes as well. Yes, and be sure to check them out. It was funny. Yeah, for for just a second, when we first walked up and saw the show, we were like, um, does that man know there's a concert going on? Did he just sit down and, and just start playing Metroid? <laughs> but then... We, we very quickly realized that the band was playing music from Metroid, and it all made sense. So we got to watch the game being played with live music behind it. It was very cool. Uh, it was kind of like, it reminded me of the time we went to go see the Chicago Symphony Orchestra perform the music of The Lord of the Rings live as the, the movie played on a giant screen behind them. But on ever so, you know, <laughs> ever so slightly less grand of a scale... <laughs> Ever so slightly. After we saw them, I went through their page on Bandcamp and listened to a bunch of their stuff, which included entire sets from previous years, Midwest Gaming Classics. And it just goes to show you how much cool stuff there always is to see and do at MGC that despite the fact that we've, we've been going for years, this is the first time that we've really caught their act. And it was a lot of fun. It was.
Let's talk about some of the the stuff we actually played. So the way the show was set up, there's the main hall, which is organized in different sections. There's different console generations. There's vintage computers, arcade cabinets, pinball machines, new like retro style games and homebrew stuff for older consoles. We spent a surprising amount of time playing with the weirdest console Nintendo ever made, the Virtual Boy. Now, Retronauts, the podcast we mentioned, they were actually there at MGC this year, apparently talking about this wacky little system. We never had one of these, but I always love spending some time with it at MGC. So the Virtual Boy, it bombed. According to Wikipedia, it's Nintendo's lowest selling standalone console and the only one to have ever sold less than a million units. Wow. Not exactly a commercial success. It was created by Gunpei Yokoi, who we've talked about on the show before uh, a bunch. He was behind the Game Boy, the Game & Watch, and Metroid, which again, we just talked about uh, with the music. Metroid is one of our absolute favorite games and game series of all time, and we definitely need to do an entire episode devoted to it at some point, right? Oh, yes. So if you've never seen it, the Virtual Boy kind of looks like a pair of red binoculars on like a stand, and you put your face up to it, it's kind of like that awful um, glaucoma test at the eye doctor. <laughs> is that what it is? That did you that you put your face in it and it just assaults your eyeballs with blasts of air? So to even play this thing, you have to like lean forward and put your face in it. The graphics themselves look similar to the Game Boy. Now, higher quality, you know, the, the Virtual Boy came out a good five or six years after the Game Boy, but the same monochromatic look to the graphics to the screen but instead of green like the game boy the virtual boy was red which you know is is pretty intense on the old eyes after a while in fact one of the biggest complaints about the system was the fact that it caused terrible headaches in some people after extended play sessions but in small doses i think it's really fun we played tennis and i thought that the stereo 3d effect was actually really cool. It definitely is a great effect. And the way they achieve it, of course, is two individual monitors, one for each eye that have a slightly different image. So you really are putting this stereoscopically together, but it does make sense. You know, you're kind of focusing on near vision and you're seeing these separate images which aren't real. So it makes sense that you would get a bit of a headache after a while. And it is, you know, it's when you step away from it, you do often feel a little bit disoriented. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're definitely like, Bleh, for a second when you come away from it. But it, it, it's fun. What a weird, crazy experiment this thing was for Nintendo. So we had fun with that. We also spent a lot of time in the vintage computer slash really old console section this year. We even played a bunch of stuff on the Apple IIc, the very computer you had, that we talked all about in our episode about our early computing days called Computer Love. Check that episode out if you haven't heard it yet. It was so cool to see these machines in action again, to feel the crappy joysticks and clunky keyboards, and you know, seeing those old Apple computers, in particular the 2E and the 2C, I mean, it just warms my heart and brings me back to the old days instantly. Some of the things I, I thought about and I jotted down in my little notebook were that the screens were so small. And the processing power was so limited, right? I mean, there really was an art to be able to program these machines to do cool stuff because you were so constrained. And one of the coolest things that really dovetailed nicely with this trip was that I recently got this wonderful book called The Secret History of Mac Gaming by Richard Moss. It's published by the great folks at 
bitmap books who've done a whole series of books like this. They're just fabulous. And they really capture the spirit of Mac gaming culture in those early days. There are a couple of passages I just wanted to share to give you a taste of this because it really is a neat read. The first one is, quote, this is the story of people who believed the Mac was neither the serious machine that Apple's marketing decreed, nor the toy that the computer snobs so disparagingly labeled it, but rather as a dream machine that could cross between worlds. A machine that had the capacity to teach, inform, inspire, and delight any user, whatever their background and occupation, and a machine that changed the world, unquote. Wow. Whew. Another passage states, are you ready for this one? Quote, most of all, the Mac game development community produced games that were different. They knew their fans and their fans knew them. They were independent and even the successful ones were poor, but they were loved, unquote. And I think that really is part of it too. They were kind of a quirky, quirky band of people putting together these wild games. Yeah. Wow. They really were. And I just have to echo what you said about bitmap books. They are so great. They put out so much great stuff. And between the two of us, we own a lot of their, a lot of their books. And there's one I'm tempted to get all about the Commodore 64, even though we didn't own one, but we played one a lot at school. Again, we mentioned this in our uh, computer gaming episode, Computer Love. And at the show, I spent a good 30 minutes or so on a Commodore 64 playing Load Runner, which is such a great game. And as I said in that episode... Computer games like Load Runner, even though they were very similar in concept to some stuff that we played on consoles, just had a, a, such a different feel to them. And that's part of why, as a kid who didn't grow up with a computer, I loved playing games on your computer as a kid because they it just felt like such a different experience. Right? I mean... Obviously, the graphics and sound are going to be different, but it was really more than that. Those little quirks, the little conventions to a platform. It was a little bit like being a traveler to a foreign land, exciting and different with lots to learn and little surprises around every corner. Then we came back to our console roots and played a bunch of old Atari stuff. There was this beautiful Atari 2600 Sears store demo unit that we played a bunch of games on. And it was gorgeous. It was so big, unlike the Nintendo Entertainment System demo unit that we played countless times when we were kids. I think we were too young to really have seen one of these actually in a store at the time. Yes, I'd never seen one. I mean, it was really quite a specimen, this huge metal box with all of these different games. This was amazing. Yeah, it's also amazing how many of these 2600 games still hold up. How much fun they still are, especially when you take into account the different peripherals. This beautiful demo unit had a joystick and a paddle on it. It was a lot of fun. On another Atari they had set up, I played a bunch of Pitfall. And that game still plays so well. Talk about stuff that holds up from a long time ago. It's so great. And that's probably the Atari game I play the most as a kid because it's just so good. That and Dragonfire, mm-hmm. which is probably my all-time favorite game for that system We actually saw a Dragonfire cartridge for sale in the vendor hall, and it was super cool to look at it and reminisce about the the neat, like, puppet dragon that was on the label. That vendor hall, by the way, is so cool. I mean, it's huge. There's a ton of stuff to do there. You, You could spend hours there just looking at all the old games and consoles for sale. Oh, and we do. I mean, that is a big part of this to go browsing and look at all the different shops with not only used games, but this year they even had some artists, which was really cool to see their wares. And then lots of neat little niche 
toys and memorabilia and little collectibles that really speak to the demographic. Yeah, the kind of Comic-Con style Artist Alley is a recent addition to MGC, and it's super cool. Another game for the Atari 2600 that we played a lot of, kind of surprisingly, was Adventure, which as a kid felt kind of impenetrable and mysterious, but playing it now, it feels super ambitious, I think because it laid the groundwork for a lot of the games that we that came later that we loved, like The Legend of Zelda. And I think it's a, that was the first time I ever felt like confused and scared, in a good way, by a game. Because you were trying to figure out what, like, what to do and where to go and like, laugh all you want now at the dragon in that game. I showed this game to my kids and they literally did. They, they laughed the dragon and they said it looks <laughs> like a fat duck. But <laughs> it kind of does. Back in the day, that thing was scary when it was chasing you around. It was. Then there was the even older console stuff, which is always cool to see. They had a few different versions of Pong. Which we remember, but we were really young. And I think I found the the exact unit that my family had. It had a bunch of supposedly different games built in. But they were all, I mean, they were really basically identical. They each just had slightly different sized uh, lines hitting a square block back and forth. <laughs> it, but it was like, uh, you can play uh, hockey, tennis, ping pong table tennis like it it was all the same game i love it there was an original odyssey system the very first commercial home console and like when else are we ever going to get to play with this cool truly vintage stuff you know, one thing I loved that there were these little tableaus. There was a little statuette of E.T. holding a phone. There was this retro 70s living room set up with Pong and a lava lamp and this cool blanket. Like it was really clever, you know, and really it just it really evoked the emotions and the feeling more than just showing the hardware out there. I thought that was really clever. Yes, yeah, super clever. Gave it all some sort of cultural context. And I played some E.T. at that station and look, is E.T. for the Atari 2600 a great game? No, it is not. <laughs> but but it is also not any worse than like a lot of other stuff on that system. It's become trendy to hate on it and blame it for single-handedly just like destroying video games as we knew them. But in reality, it was an okay game that sold like crazy and made a ton of money. All the stories you hear about, you know, E.T. cartridges being buried in the desert because nobody wanted them, that's because everyone already had it. Everyone who had an Atari had the game, not because it didn't sell well. Atari just really kind of foolishly over-anticipated sales far beyond what they could have realistically possibly sold. The fact that the guy who made this game, Howard Scott Warshaw, made it in like a month is really impressive. Uh, He's got a new book out that is next up on my reading list. It's called Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. (laughs) It looks great. I'm excited to read it. That looks good, yeah. And then there are all the arcade games we haven't talked about yet. All the arcade cabinets at MGC. Everything on free play, of course. We played a bunch of stuff, including a ton of Karate Champ, 
by Data East, one of my all-time favorite games. This is one of the most influential games of all time. IGN listed it in their top 10 on their list of most influential games. So there was a karate champ machine at a local laundromat where we grew up. I used to go there every Friday night to play it. My parents hung out with their friends uh, every Friday night nearby. And I'd walk there alone in the dark to play karate champ. It makes me think about the last episode of the show that we did before this about cloak and dagger and how we talked about how much freedom kids had back then versus today. You know, I was like 10 or 11 at the time. And I got to say, I I don't know that I would let my kid hang out at a laundromat alone (laughs) on a Friday night playing an arcade game. But uh, I did. I played it a bunch. You know, I have my arcade game station in my office and I've set it up to simulate Karate Champ's arcade controls using two 8-Bitto arcade joysticks. One of the highlights for me of the conference was when we got there on the desk in the room was the 8-Bitto joystick that was all taken apart with all these parts around. And I was just like, all right, we're really, we're going all in. We are living it. This is such a cool thing to do to mod a very high-end retro joystick at the conference itself. I mean, if you're going to do it, that's the time to do it, right? <laughs> 8-Bit Doe is such a cool company. They make a lot of retro-style controllers that we both love and use. Like, they are our retro gaming controllers of choice. And I use their wireless uh, arcade joysticks in my home setup, which are just beautiful. And I'm in the process of upgrading them. I'm replacing the already very good joystick and buttons they come with to actual, like real arcade components from Sanwa. And yeah, I brought one up to Milwaukee to play games with and tinker around with when we weren't uh, either at the show or stuffing our faces with Ian's Pizza, <laughs> which is our favorite pizza joint in Milwaukee. It's become uh, part of our yearly MGC ritual that we always look forward to. So we played a bunch of rounds of Karate Champ at the show. And I got to tell you, like considering how much experience I have with the game, you held your own pretty well, my friend. And then you went on to school me at Mortal Kombat 11. That, that was too much fun. I mean, we were laughing so hard. And what an amazing juxtaposition of two similar concepts, right? Two fighting games, one-on-one, the, the father of it all, Karate Champer, the great-great-grandpa now, and then this super fancy, ultra-high-resolution graphics with these crazy finishing moves. And honestly, I was never a big Mortal Kombat fan, but this kind of won me over. Everything from being able to be the Terminator yes. to you know, all this crazy stuff. It was awesome. There are some modern, current multiplayer games at MGC as well, and they had the most recent version of Mortal Kombat, which is 11. That's a series that's been going strong since it first came out in... 1992 which is where when we first played it at super just games an arcade we spent a ton of time at in high school the name of that place always confused us because super just games implies the existence of like regular just games or just just games i don't know (laughs) but we never saw one of those and we watched people playing this game and you know it looked really neat but then we found out you could be these just blatantly retro nostalgic characters clearly 
added to appeal to middle-aged 80s nerds like us, like RoboCop and the Terminator and Rambo, and it worked. We had to play it, and it was so much fun. John Rambo, come with me. What's my crime? Vagrancy? Unlawfully resisting arrest. Round one, fight. So not only do you get to play old games like Karate Champ and new games like Mortal Kombat 11 at the show, you get to check out new old games, like like brand new games made for older systems like the NES. Uh, the homebrew scene is so cool. And that's what that means is it's developers creating new games for old systems and even though we don't have any of these old systems, this old hardware to play these games on, we just love that this is a thing. It's so cool to see how modern day developers are able to get performance out of these old systems in ways that the developers of the original games hadn't really thought of. There's a great video on YouTube of Todd Fry, kind of the main guy behind the Atari 2600, the infamous Atari 2600 version of Pac-Man. He was checking out a modern homebrew version of Pac-Man that he called really cool, but a little depressing because it was just so much better than what he was able to do back then. And that's because developers just thought to do different stuff that wasn't really done back at the time. And can I just stop you and say that is one of my favorite ideas that with a system with the same exact constraints, right? They're not taking advantage of more powerful hardware or better, better systems or equipment. They're actually solving problems in a novel way. Now, no doubt they're standing on the shoulders of giants and they have had a lot more time to develop the game. The poor guy probably had to do it in a month. But how cool is it to see them leveraging old hardware to do things we didn't even think was possible before? It's so cool. It's so cool to see. And, you know, all this amazing stuff people are are making, this homebrew stuff. It's really only thanks to this show that we ever really get to experience any of it. And that's just one of the amazing things about the Midwest Gaming Classic. We go, you and I largely go for the classic stuff that we love, right? But we always walk away with something new and cool that we didn't expect. And it was so great to be able to enjoy it again. We had such a great time this year at MGC. It was so great being back. And man, we just want to say a big thank you to everyone who helped make the show happen. I mean, I'm sure this is always a ton of work to put the show together. But this year must have been especially challenging. And we just appreciate so much all the work that went into it. This show is clearly very clearly a labor of love by people who love games for people who love games like us. And if you love games as much as we do, check out MidwestGamingClassic.com or find them on social media for info about next year's show. We seriously can't recommend it enough. We were just there and we're already excited to go back for MGC 2022 and hopefully we'll see you there. The secret history of Mac games used that delightful turn of phrase to describe a Macintosh computer, quote, a dream machine that could cross between worlds, unquote. Because our imaginations had to do most of the work in those days, I think that the experience of what is now called retro gaming has stuck with us for all these years. 
To some degree, we've been in an extended, uncanny valley with games. They are almost enough to fully immerse us in their world, but sometimes not quite. And because they are so expressive and expansive, our imaginations have had to work less over time, paradoxically worsening this effect. Perhaps one day we'll have virtual reality experiences that will be even better than the proverbial old days. But until then, these classic games will always have a special place in our hearts. And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaid McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production.